Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Michael Nyberg, Chair of War Studies at the U.S. Army War College, and I'm here today with William Inboden, Executive Director and William Powers, Jr. Chair of the Clement Center for National Security at the Lyndon B. Johnson School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas, Austin. Most recently, he is the author of The Peacemaker, Ronald Reagan in the White House and the World from Dutton Press 2022. Welcome, Will, and congrats on the book. Thanks very much, Mike. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, I want to start with an obvious question. You, uh, before you became an academic and moved to the Clement Center, you had a, a long and distinguished career in government and in public policy, both. How did that background affect the way you thought about the problem you were tackling, which is the sort of the end of the, the way the Cold War came to an end and the particular role of Ronald Reagan and the people around him in ending it? Thanks. It's a great question. And uh, my background as a policymaker very definitely shaped my approach to the research and writing and, and overall structure and arguments of the book. I'll just highlight a couple particular themes there. Um, one is, uh, you know, having worked at the National Security Council and the State Department and, you know, Congress uh, before that, I'd seen firsthand the role of personalities, of personal relationships uh, in the policy process, you know, that it's not just about how the, the paper flow goes or how policy arguments are made or statutes are invoked or things like that, but uh, the backgrounds, the personalities, the temperaments that, uh, that principals have, that the staff have uh, with, with, with each other. And so then in approaching the research and writing of this book about the Reagan administration's foreign policy in the 19, 1980s, uh, where I did not have firsthand experience, you know, I was growing up as a teenager in Arizona at the time, uh, I think and hope that in the research and writing process, I was paying more careful heed uh, to you know, the tensions between George Shultz as Secretary of State and Cap Weinberger as Secretary of Defense, or the personal history that President Reagan himself had with Bill Clark, his second national security advisor, who I think was in a lot of ways his most his most successful one. Or even uh, at the you know the staff level, uh, tensions between assistant secretaries of state and assistant secretaries of, of defense, uh, some of which would go back to uh, you know their earlier time together uh, on on Capitol Hill in rival offices 10 or 15 years earlier. So uh, so that would be one. Another way that my policy background shaped uh, my approach to the book. And this also gets into the um, the narrative structure of the book. I'm trying to trace uh, the unfolding of so many different events at once. Certainly Reagan's uh, anti-Soviet strategies in the Cold War is the main through line, but also Asia policy, counterterrorism, hostage crises in the Middle East, uh, trade tensions with, uh, with, with Japan. Uh, as a policymaker, I'd seen firsthand how uh, you know, senior leaders, the President of the United States, the National Security Advisor, they are dealing every day with an unrelenting cascade of events, dozens of decisions of wildly disparate issues landing on their desks. And so while as 
a scholar now or, or journalists or others who are writing a, a book on a particular topic, we may have the luxury of focusing in depth on the one big thing we want to look at, whatever issue that may be, U.S.-China relations, you know, arms control in the Cold War, counterterrorism. But for policymakers, they are dealing with what George Schultz called the simultaneity of events. So many different things happening at once. You know, uh, and again, domestic politics, uh, political tensions with Capitol Hill, as well as all the different issues that they're that they're addressing. And so I, I tried to be mindful that when Reagan was facing a, a big, you know, a big strategic decision about the Soviets, that he's also got you know fifteen twenty other issues uh, crowding his inbox or on his mind. And I tried to recapture that in the in the book as well. Yeah, that's something I think that is is difficult to recreate as an historian, that the issue that became the most important over time may not have been the issue that was of, of first priority to the policymakers. I remember seeing the briefing book for Harry Truman when he went over for the Potsdam Conference, and I remember on one of the days, it was a water treaty with Mexico over Rio Grande water usage that was his number one legislative priority, which you know struck me certainly as, as a little bit odd. Uh, yeah. Were, were you in government when you first had the idea that you wanted to do a book on this, or is this a project that came to your mind after you had left? It came to my mind after I had left, but it, it evolved out of a government idea. So when I left the National Security Council staff, uh, a book I decided I wanted to try to write, which I still may eventually return to, was a history of the National Security Council from you know its pre-incarnation in uh, the, the Roosevelt administration on up to the present day. And so as I started doing the research on that, what was going to be an NSC book, before I'd go to East Presidential Library, I would try to read uh, you know, the best two or three synthetic accounts of that president's overall foreign policy. And when I was going out to the Reagan Library to you know, start the research just on what was going to be about the Reagan NSC, even though there's many, many good books that have been written on Reagan and the Reagan administration, I couldn't find that one comprehensive treatment. Uh, and and then as I was digging through the Reagan archives, I realized, wow, there's a lot of newly declassified documents here, which previous books on Reagan hadn't been able to see. I decided maybe that's the book I want to write rather than a history of the NSC is just a much deeper dive, a comprehensive treatment of Reagan's foreign policy. So that's that's how it evolved into this particular book. So was it a was it a kind of aha moment? Like you you your brain was working around the issue and then you kind of saw where there was a gap and all of a sudden it was just, okay, that's it. That's what I'm gonna work on. Or was this an idea that kind of gelled and developed in your head and modified, or did you get that that lightning bolt, this is it? Yeah, it, it was a both and. So it it uh, cogitated for probably about a year, year and a half as I was, you know, thinking about it, but still uh, exploring doing that, doing that, that NSC book. Uh, but then uh, finally, uh, around late 2016, early, early 2017, uh, this was when you know, President Trump had gotten the nomination and then it was just had just been elected as the, the new Republican president. Uh, and then there were big debates surfacing about uh, is you know Trump consistent with or, or different from the Reagan legacy. And you know, I won't get into the substance of that right now. But I realized ah, there is, there is a good it, it's an opportune moment to take a fresh look at Reagan's foreign policy. And I'd been thinking about doing it that way anyway. Uh, but that was the final crystallizing like, yes, I think uh, I think there is a there's a window to do this book. Yeah, it's a great feeling when you realize that the thing you're interested in historically has all of a sudden become relevant uh, in, in the current environment. Sometimes it's not such a great thing as the First World War and Second World War stuff that I've been doing is a little bit too real with what's going on in Ukraine. But there oh, is that yes. moment when, when, when you realize you might be able to talk to multiple readerships. So uh, yeah, that, that's always a fantastic moment. 
you and I are roughly the same age. We just found out that your family came from very close to where my wife's family at least had come from. So we have a little bit of that in common as well. Uh, and you already said you, you came of age politically about the time that I did, which is, which is the Reagan years. Uh, you must have had some preformed opinions or biases about the people that you wrote about, either positively or negatively. You must have already had a kind of preconceived idea about these folks. How, as a writer, did you handle that, knowing that you, you know, when, when, just when I do World War One stuff, I, I don't really know who many of these people are until I really start digging. Here, you're writing about people that you you know, you 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 watched as you were an adolescent and learning about politics on your own. Did did you consciously try to correct for that bias, or did you did you look for ways to counter it? How did you handle that problem? Yeah, it's a really good question, and I'll say that uh, I I had two phases of biases, if you will. Um, the first one, and I readers who look carefully at my book in the photo section, you'll see uh, an example of this in one of the photo captions. Uh, when I was coming of age in the um, in the nineteen eighties, uh, I was as an adolescent, I was very anti Reagan. I uh, was very oh, concerned about nuclear. Oh yeah, I was uh, very much on the left. I was a, I was a teenager, but uh, I was growing up in Tucson, Arizona, and the two big issues that we were concerned about in Tucson were one, the risk of nuclear war. You know, Tucson uh, was at the time surrounded by about 30 Titan missile silos in the mountains around the city. And so uh, we knew we were high in the Soviet targeting list. Uh, uh, and uh, and so I was, I had an anti-Reagan poster I hung on my wall, uh, you know, dismissing him as a deranged warmonger. And then the other big issue, because Tucson's just an hour from the Mexican border, it were Central America policies. And a number of Salvadoran and Nicaraguan refugees were coming to, to, to Tucson and being you know, resettled by a church I was involved with. So I was... Um, very, uh, I did not have a terribly well informed political conscience, uh, but insofar as I did, I was very anti anti Reagan. Now, later, uh, 20 years later, when I'm starting the project, or 25 years later, I guess that eventually becomes this book, I had migrated quite a bit politically, I developed some policy experience, and I went into the book with a more favorable sense of Reagan and his and his team overall, but still wasn't quite sure what I was going to make of some of the particular personalities. So, uh, you know, I, I went into the book with a pretty favorable assessment of George Shultz as Secretary of State that, if anything, was uh, was enhanced. I, I come out with a very favorable assessment of, you know, some flaws I talk about in the book. Um, I, I went into the project with a pretty favorable assessment of Cap Weinberger as Secretary of Defense, and actually my esteem for him went down a bit over the course of working on the book. I try to give it a fair account. Again, as you said, I was trying to correct from my biases, but just saw um particularly in second term, uh, ways that he was um, just not supportive of Reagan's diplomatic efforts with the Soviets and didn't even fully appreciate the, uh, uh, I think, the diplomatic purposes that Reagan wanted his arms buildup and modernization to, to serve. Um, one other figure I'll mention that I started with a negative assessment and changed very much to a positive assessment is Bill Clark, the National Security Advisor who I'd, who I'd mentioned earlier. Um, and that was the one where I probably had the, had the biggest change. I have a revisionist take on him trying to uh, paint a more positive uh, portrait of his his uh, role in some very critical years. Well, one day we'll have to have a conversation, not not on this podcast, about about politics and that political transformation of yours. And I I remember as a kid growing up in Pittsburgh, the Pittsburgh newspapers would always show like it was with with a perverse pride, like we're the number three Soviet nuclear target because of the steel mills, and we're yeah. you know this kind of like sense that we're we're on their list. Um, yeah, but we'll, we'll have to have that conversation another time. Um, you did a lot of interviews for this because another way that your work and mine are different, I have tried where I could to avoid interviewing people. 
um, I obviously the, the 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 places the the historical time periods I work in don't 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 allow for interviews anyway. Um, how did you handle that process of interviewing? One of the things I'm always worried about is as people get older. Of course, we we know their memories aren't always terribly accurate. We know that they filter the past through what they're seeing in the present. How did you go about that process? Yes. So doing the, and I uh, can't remember the exact number, but I interviewed probably 30 to 40 um, former senior Reagan administration officials over the course of the, the research, at least seven of whom have since died. Uh, so that, you know, it was a very uh, poignant commentary on human mortality. Here's my summary of the interviews. They were very enjoyable and by and large unhelpful. Uh, That's interesting too. Yeah. 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 Why Uh, do you say unhelpful? What was unhelpful about that process? I just did not learn a whole lot from the interviews that I had not either already gleaned from memoirs uh, or from my archival research. Uh, And I would try to ask some very specific questions. But you, you hinted um, in your you know thoughtful question there about some of the limitations of interviews, uh, people's memories fading, uh, and sometimes you know uh, being subconsciously tempted to shade a, a particular account of how, how something may have happened. Um, I, you know, to add some texture to this, like I said, I, I enjoyed the interviews. These are some very notable people. They were invariably uh, pleasant. Um, uh, they were very justifiably proud of their service. And I would get some insights. Uh, you know, the interviews teased out even more the interagency tensions and bureaucratic feuding in the administration. And every now and then an in, in interview would give me a kernel of insight I hadn't had before, but by and large, I found, and this is not to be critical of any individual person whom I interviewed, I'm very grateful of them, but by and large, I found that um, they would often repeat stories and insights that they had already shared if they'd written a memoir. Many of them had written memoirs, even if that memoir had been 20 years earlier. Uh, A number of them had done oral histories before, you know, University of Virginia's oral history project was very helpful. And even if their interview with UVA had been 20 years earlier before mine, they would still be repeating a lot of the same points. And then I would find, uh, I never encountered any intentional deception, but I found quite a bit of inaccuracies. Uh, Inaccuracies in terms of they would share, you know, okay, you know, in this particular month, I was working on this or going to this summit. And, and I knew from the archives that that just hadn't happened that particular month. And I, you know, memories just get to faulty. We're all, we're all susceptible to this. But um, I, you'll notice anyone who does a really careful read of my footnotes will see I don't cite the interviews a lot, even though I collectively did, you know, a few hundred hours of interviews with these 30 or 40 people. Um, they just weren't as helpful as I thought they would be. Doesn't mean I regret doing them, but it, it's a, a cautionary note on uh, their limited utility. Yeah, I did notice that 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 for all the interviews you had done, they didn't appear in the footnotes all that much. So I was that was one of the things that prompted the question. You don't have to name names, but did anybody say no? I don't want to be interviewed. Did you encounter uh, that problem? No, I didn't. I as I'm, I'm I was just pausing for a second to think. Did I am I forgetting anyone? But no, everyone was was willing to, uh, including a couple. And again, I won't name names here who had previously not been willing to be interviewed for many many other books. But I think word was getting around through the Reagan Alumni Network that I was you know, uh, fair in my approach. Mm-hmm. I was not going into this with any gotcha or tendentious uh, agenda um, and just wanted to tell the story. And so I, I think that raised the comfort level of, of some people with the interviews, but uh, yeah, none, and, none who refused me. 
and you had been in government service, so you were in a sense yeah. a made guy, right? They they knew who you were, they knew who you knew, so that that must yeah, have made it much easier. Yeah, there was a certain easier. credibility to that. Yeah, and part of it also is I I had started off. I did a, my first few interviews with very senior people. So George Schultz was one of the first ones I did. Uh, uh, Bud McFarlane pretty early on, both of whom, of course, have since died. Uh, and that that gives a certain legitimacy to the project. That if you know people who were assistant secretaries hear that you had interviewed the secretary of the National Security Advisor, they're going to be more willing to talk. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, did you later run any ideas, Pi? The only interviewing really that I did, I, I did a study for the RAND Corporation one time way back when I was a graduate student, and I interviewed Jean Holm, who was the first uh, female two-star in the U.S. military. And I, I sent some chapters that I had written or some parts of this to her after I had interviewed her, and I found that to be a really interesting process. Did you, did you do that? Did you go back to participants and say, Either can you check this for me or here's something I'm going to say about you. Uh, is is this consistent with what you remember? Did you do that process? I did that a few times. Uh, not not with everybody. It just would have been you know too too overwhelming. Right. And I was you know really into the gun to finish that. But um, uh, Tom Reed, who had been previously been Secretary of the Air Force, then was senior NSC staff for Reagan, uh, uh, who uh, had done some of the continuity of government operations and the, you know, the contingency of a decapitated nuclear strike. Uh, I went back to him to confirm some details and he was very helpful. Henry now who'd been on the NSC staff, I went back to him and, uh, he gave some helpful input on some of the draft uh, chapters. Ken Edelman, head of the arms control and disarmament agency. Uh, these are ones coming to me off the top of my head, uh, who'd been helpful when I, when I went back, but I, but I didn't do that with every last one. I want to talk about the book a little bit in some detail, some writing choices that you made. Um, One thing you did is you wrote very short chapter sections, sometimes just two or three paragraphs per section. Is that something that you made as a conscious choice as a writer? Is that something that sort of developed organically as you were working on it? What, what, What led you to that choice? Yeah, it developed somewhat organically, but it was also um, a, a recommendation from my editor, Brent Howard with Dutton, who I know you're, you're working with as well, who yep. was really, yep. really terrific to work with. Um, and part of it was I knew that I was going to be throwing a lot of material at the reader, uh, not just that it's a relatively long book, but that it is trying to cover so many different issues. And I thought if I was giving the reader more you know, digestible, mentally digestible, bite-sized chunks, smaller sections that it can hold the reader's attention a little bit better uh, without the risk of them uh, feeling like they're, they're losing the, losing the broader, broader thread. And I think it did that. And it, it makes sense to something you said earlier, which is your appreciation that the administration was dealing with multiple cascading problems all at once. Those short chunks do sort of make you think, okay, here's a Central America problem, and here's a Poland problem, and here's a China problem. And they are trying to figure out how to go through that. So yeah, I, I just wanted to, to talk a little bit about how you came to that to that choice. So th- that, was, that was your editor's suggestion coming to you, and then you moved forward with it on his suggestion. Yeah. And, and I will say when he suggested it, it made good sense to me. I wasn't resistant to that at all. Um, and, you know, this was my first time doing a big synthetic narrative history like this. And so it was somewhat uncharted territory. So I was looking for as much uh, advice and guidance as I, as I could get. So when he said that, I, I said, that makes good sense. I'm going to, I'm going to try that, but I want to give credit to him for the suggestion. Well, Brent, if you're listening, you and I may have that a uh, very similar conversation here in the not too distant <laughs> yeah. future. Um, Ash Carter, I think it was Ash Carter, Secretary of Defense uh, under President Obama, once said that the language of power in Washington, he said, was the language of history. And I loved the way that you used historical framing here to note the historical parallels and historical 
events that were playing on the minds of Reagan and the people around him. One, a positive historical frame of the Second World War, and the other, a very negative historical frame of Vietnam. So try to follow one model and don't try to follow uh, another model. Um, is, Is this also something that you developed as you went through I mean I, I think that what you did is really critical what what are the what are the historical anchor points as I call them that that these people had in their minds what were they trying to do and not trying to do were you consciously looking for those or did those two just sort of jump off the page at you yes it's it's a both and there so you know because of my own training as a historian and also my background as a policymaker I I knew I'd seen firsthand how senior policymakers naturally gravitate to the lessons of history and and often to their own personal histories right if you want to understand why uh, someone has the framework they do as a 65 year old look at what they were doing in life in their 20s and 30s you know those those formative experiences uh, especially if it was if that entailed a searing uh, experience of combat or uh, or an international trial or uh, something like that. So I was looking for that somewhat, but at the same time, even early in my research, it was really jumping out everywhere. I mean, you know, Reagan regularly making references to to World to World War II, uh, and then just looking at the personal backgrounds of just about all the senior officials in his administration were either World War II vets or Vietnam vets, and they would regularly reference these. Uh, and finally, I'll say. With so much of the book, I was trying as much as I could to put myself in their shoes to look at what did the world look and feel like to them at the time, you know, with a, an uncertain future. And part of that was thinking about, all right, what are the most uh, formative experiences for them that are going to be in their back of their mind um, from their past anytime they're wrestling with a new policy challenge? And, and that also led me right away to, to Vietnam and World War II. Yeah, obviously, completely different human beings in completely different contexts. But I think you can see the way that Vladimir Putin in his speeches just sprinkles these historical negative references around to justify the things that he's doing. So this is definitely something I've been working with with students here on is, is if you want to understand the way a person is thinking, look for where their historical reference points and their historical anchor points are. So I appreciated the way that you, you did that both explicitly in the book and then you sort of sprinkled it through the book. You said right at the beginning of the book, these are the two historical events that were playing on their minds more than any others. And and here's why they really matter. I thought that was really well done. And it's it's an example of the kind of thinking I think that we all should be doing more of when we listen to the way that senior leaders speak. Um, so I'm, I'm glad to hear that that was something that you were kind of intentionally doing as you, as you walked in to, to the project. Um, this is also the first project, correct me if I'm wrong, that you were kind of writing for a wider general audience. You weren't writing for another group of academics or a, a paper for somebody in the Pentagon. This is, you were writing to a, a big audience here. Yes. What, what choices were involved in in that? That can be an intimidating process for a lot of writers. Um, getting out of that community where you're speaking to 30 or 40 other people who do what you do. Now you're speaking to, hopefully, the man or woman who's picking up a book to read on their flight to Chicago. Like, How did you approach that? Yeah, it was it was uh, as I've said I was saying to a friend recently um, writing a narrative history for a, a broader audience like this uh, is the hardest writing project I've ever undertaken and the most enjoyable uh, and you know un- unpack that a little bit uh, first I wanted to write it as a story I wanted to uh, recreate uh, the Cold War the, the end of the Cold War years the 1980s as a intensely 
uh, intensely difficult and challenging drama, right? Uh, and of course, Reagan's a very, very dramatic character. Uh, and having, you know, come of age during that time, I had, you know, memories, as you and I were discussing earlier about, you know, the fears of nuclear war and the, and the, the Soviet menace. And, you know, this is very pervasive in popular culture. So I, I wanted to write in a way that, um, that people could see this is just a, uh, it's a great story. You know, in, in this case, this story has a pretty happy ending, you know, the peaceful, peaceful end of the Cold War and the world is spared nuclear, nuclear destruction. But, you know, Reagan and his team and ordinary Americans, everyone living through it at the time, no one knew for sure how the story was going to end. And I wanted to recapture that sense of contingency, of drama, of uncertainty, and just, you know, very much the terror of the day. Uh, but I, I also looked to, you know, uh, much better writers of narrative history than me. You know, I'm a, a fan of, of uh, you know, some of the the popular historians out there, uh, David McCullough, uh, uh, Rick, Rick Atkinson, uh, you know, some of um, uh, Edmund Morris's better work, someone, you know, the late William Manchester, some of, some of his as well. You know, these are not ones we normally think of as academic historians. And I don't mean that as a, you know, criticism, just mm-hmm. an observation, but they are great stylists and right and using history as a story at the core. And I, uh, you know, while never approaching their, their levels of, of craftsmanship, at least uh, wanted to try to emulate and learn from that as best I could. So did you do that intentionally? Did you, I've done this with certain writers, you sort of pick up the book and try to figure out how they wrote and how, how they, how they thought about putting paragraphs and sentences together. Did you do that intentionally? Oh yeah, very much. I mean, I would, even as a writing exercise, so at moments when I'd be coming up with a particularly thorny passage I was trying to craft in, in my Reagan book, I would sometimes, you know, step away from the computer and, pick off the shelf kind of one of Manchester's uh, Churchill Churchill biographies and just read out loud to myself a few pages of it because I wanted to get the cadences, the rhythms, uh, you know, the, 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 the craftsmanship with words that he, that he was using. Again, I don't want to pretend that that level of greatness, but I was self-consciously trying to get my mind and therefore hopefully my pen or my keyboard as, as it were in, in that same frame. So it was, it was very intentional. Sounds like a good way to deal with writer's block, too, which has been a common theme of this series. How do writers deal with with writer's block? Picking up another writer and saying, how would he or she deal with this? Uh, I used to do that with Joan Didion's stuff a lot when I was getting writer's block because of the the very precise way in which she chose words and the and the, the very hard-hitting sentences that she could write. So that, that, that's, that's a good tip, too. Uh, we're already starting to run out of time, so I have to ask you uh, a couple of questions that I always like to ask uh, folks on this on this podcast. What lesson did you learn from writing this book that you hope to apply to your next book? So, ah, boy, that's a that's a great one. I think um, uh, letting yourself be be surprised by by research, right? Even though I went into this with a you know a certain framework about that Reagan had a pretty uh, successful Cold War policy overall, a couple big surprises to me in the course of the research was I wasn't even fully looking for one, just how important Japan was as a strategic partner. Uh, you know, I wasn't looking for that at all, but it, it was just the evidence was overwhelming. And the second, which you saw as a theme in the book is the importance of Reagan's religious faith to his overall cold war strategies and his conduct as, as president. And so I, you know, for the next book I undertake and, you know, not sure what it'll be yet, but I've got a couple of ideas. I I want to remind myself to be open-minded and be willing to be surprised by where the research and evidence will take me. That is fabulous advice. Uh, so the last question I'm going to ask you, Will, what are you reading right now? What What are the books that are inspiring you? 
So, yeah, uh, one that I'm nearly finished with, just have one chapter left, which I will strongly, uh, highly recommend to any, any, of, your, uh, any, any of your listeners, is um, Philip uh, Zelikow's fantastic new book on World War I, the road, the road Less Traveled. I'm sure you're familiar with it already. Mm-hmm. I, guess I shouldn't say new. It came out about a year ago. But looking back at that lost chance for peace in the 1916-1917 uh, timeframe. Um, and, you know, we now look back and regard, you know, the, the dreadful four, four and a half years of the war as kind of inevitable how they were going to play out. But he shows uh, there was a, a genuine opportunity and a, re- and a real missed, missed one there for, for, a peace, for a peace settlement. So um, so I would certainly certainly recommend, recommend that one. Uh, and then uh, I've recently discovered Alan First's uh, novels. And so I'm kind of making my way through the, uh, the, the Alan First body of work. You know, it does such great work in Europe and then kind of historical fiction about Europe in the 1930s and kind of ideological conflict between communism and Nazism, uh, both of them, of course, dreadful totalitarianisms. And he's also a wonderful craftsman with words. He is actually, he's a fantastic writer. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Will, I want to thank you once again for joining us. Uh, We can continue these discussions in Carlisle, Austin, or where our families almost intersect in my wife's hometown of Newcastle, Pennsylvania. Uh, And I wish you great success with the book. And thanks to all of you for listening in. Please send us your comments on this episode and send us suggestions for future episodes. You can subscribe to A Better Piece on your podcatcher of choice. Please rate and review this podcast because that's how more people can hear about us so that we can continue to grow this community for conversations like this one. This conversation is over, but we look forward to welcoming you again soon. Until next time from The War Room, I'm Michael Nyberg. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.